Well, in the law of averages, I think usually we could say a sermon around here probably takes 45 to 50 minutes, something like that. I think um, we've used 180 minutes over these last three weeks. On average, I was looking and seeing the sermons in Mark 13 took about an hour. And so if we average out 45 minutes over four weeks, I think I've chewed into today's sermon pretty heavily over the last three, which means I'm, I have about 15 minutes left if we're going to keep that average anymore. So um, yeah, it's not going to happen. If you were coming in hoping for that as well, realizing we're only dealing with 11 verses, we're not looking at something that people disagree about, um, well, I'm sorry. But uh, that, is, that said, last week I got a little bit of a warning signal from the Lord that, hey, you need to be done talking because I couldn't speak anymore and I just started coughing. The good news for those of you who want a short sermon is that I've had a cold this last week. And so this, this may happen earlier. We're just going to have to dive right in. One other piece of information, though, for you by way of an announcement is that uh, we will have in the email, if you want to participate with the bakers, either in person or uh, online, um, the service that will be happening on Friday, uh, there will be Zoom information for it in the email, and you can, uh, you can Zoom in. They're setting that up for family that's out of town that might not be able to make it. Um, but as well, there is uh, information about the service um, out on the foyer, and you can, uh, you can pick one of those up if you would like to travel out. The, um, yeah, the, the Celebration of Life, I believe, is what you've been calling it, the same name, okay? The Celebration of Life is um, going to be happening out in the Toledo area. So, um, so there you go. Well, Mark chapter 14 obviously has a very different feel as we read it from where we've been these last three weeks. Thank you guys again for being with us, but having moved through the temple, having everything that we've seen from the triumphal entry, I just want to recognize the, the interesting moment we're in right now as a church, right? Um, we're right before, Mark says in chapter 14, verse 1, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What that means is that we are today looking at what's going to happen right before the Last Supper. So that means next week we're going to be in Mark when he talks about the Last Supper, right? Well, Easter's coming in a little while, and then we're going to celebrate during the Holy Week, what you call that time from the triumphal entry until the Good Friday. We're going to be revisiting those kinds of things. So just to remember what's going on, as we celebrate this Lenten season, we're approaching Holy Week, as we're in Mark, we've been in the Holy Week for a little while. We were in the triumphal entry a long time ago. We spent our time thinking about what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple, how he was then accosted in the temple by all those who wanted to challenge him, find out uh, how his authority was to be understood. He left the temple and then taught, talked about the destruction of the temple and the, the way that that would launch us into the future, their future and ours. And then we are now, Mark says in verse 1, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm not sure that any of us have had a week like Jesus's has been so far. If you just paused and said, hey, Jesus, how you doing? He'd probably, in his humanity at least, if nothing else, say, it's been a week. This has been a lot. 
I came in, I fulfilled scripture, I entered into the place that ought to welcome me, I was rejected by them, I, the only one with authority to be able to clean up my father's house, cleaned it up, and then prophetically, as I had announced before, I was challenged by those who owned this vineyard from their perspective, and I was sent out, and he knows how this week is going to end. If you were to pause and ask Jesus, how are you doing? He might say, you know, as a man, I could use a little pick-me-up right now. Because I've just taught a lot, I've just done a lot, I've been challenged a lot, and I know that right ahead of me is a lot of difficulty. The good news is, I think a little refresher is coming for Jesus. Still one that requires strength, but I'm encouraged to read a story like this, because in a moment that we always read how much there's something that Jesus is doing for us, right? And that's the way we've tried to read the Gospel of Mark. We've tried to read the Gospel of Mark as though it were about Jesus and not us because it's about Jesus and not us. And yet here's a moment where someone you wouldn't expect participates in a way that refreshes, encourages even, the one that we need to come and rescue us. It's a great moment in Mark, really, I think. And it's one that if we're faithful to what Jesus says, when we're proclaiming the gospel, ought to be right there on the tips of our tongue as well. So let's dive in. What we're going to see here is ultimately a sacrifice made by someone you wouldn't expect. And yet, there are three things that we want to see about this sacrifice. And the first is that it's timely. This sacrifice, not just because of the context we just described, but in light of what else has been going on, this is an incredibly timely sacrifice, and Mark sets the tone for it. In case we forgot all that's been going on through Mark 13, he begins 14 by telling us, it's now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, what Mark's reminding us is what he's already told us a number of times. Jesus didn't just come to bring reform to the temple. Jesus didn't just come to bring teaching to his people. Jesus didn't just come to participate in feasts about temporary sacrifices. He came to displace it all. He came to become the temple. He came to become the sacrifice, and that was not going to require what everybody else thought, especially the disciples who were just saying, the temple's going to be destroyed. When is this going to happen? When will you bring about the kingdom the way that we're hoping? They were not hoping it would be this way, but Jesus has been setting the table for a while. Think about what he said in chapter 9. They went on from there and passed through Galilee And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Remember back to that moment? It's right around that time that wasn't a really good moment for Peter. Remember that? Who is Jesus? You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. You're the one who's coming. Good job, Peter. 
What that means is that I'm going to die. Oh, Jesus, no, that's not the way this is going to go. This rubs against the way that I'm thinking about you. Ah, ah, boy, Peter, you did so well. You were speaking for God a moment ago. You're speaking for Satan now, so you need to get out of the way. Remember that moment? I'm thinking Peter remembers that moment. The disciples are probably remembering that moment, but if they had missed it, on the other side of this, Jesus tells a story about that interaction he just had in the temple. Remember, he went in, and before he went into the temple, he encountered a fig tree. It looked fruitful, but wasn't, and so he cursed it. Went in, did to the temple what he metaphorically did to the fig tree, and then they come out, they see the fig tree, and they say, wow, this fig tree really was cursed. Jesus then presses that analogy home by telling a story of some people who owned a vineyard. The master of the vineyard went away. He sent for his his due. And every servant they beat, every servant they beat. And then he says, I'm going to send my son. And Jesus said it this way. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. One thing I learned from when Michael preached is sometimes it's good to make notes for when to take a drink. So I kind of gave myself, and I don't know if you knew that or not, but it was part of the way he approached his passage is to say, I'm going to make a note to myself to drink here. And I thought, that's a really good idea. You see what Jesus has in the back of his mind? He's been trying to tell the disciples. They've been very slow to accept it. But Jesus knows that what happened after, or what happened at the triumphal entry set in place a series of events, set them in motion that would lead to his ultimate death. In fact, in Matthew, the parallel passage to what we have in Mark, Matthew makes it even more clear by reminding them that right after the teaching on the temple, it it comes across this way. When Jesus has finished all these sayings, the sayings about the temple, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He could not put this more bluntly. And I think this is incredibly helpful for us because if you were to encounter not Jesus and ask how is Jesus doing, but if you were to encounter what we know from John to be Mary, But for reasons we'll discuss in a little bit, Mark doesn't identify as Mary, but identifies as a woman. If you were to encounter this woman, the way Mark calls her, and you asked, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? My guess is that on one level, she would say, I feel really good. I'm, I'm grateful for what I've heard that Jesus has done. We're Here in Bethany, we're aware of what Jesus is doing. We know that in Jerusalem, Jesus asserted his authority, and yet I have this vague sense of trouble. I have this vague sense that something's coming, and it's probably because of passages like these. Though Mark doesn't include it, if Matthew's right, that this is what Jesus says right afterwards, then what Mark is, or what 
what Mary, what this woman is aware of is that something is going on. But does Mark tell us what he knows, what she knows? He does not. Mark doesn't directly tie some, you know, connection between what she's about to do and what she knows. But regardless of whether she'd pass the test, regardless of whether or not when she's commended by Jesus at the end, she would be surprised, it doesn't matter. The point still stands that what she is about to do, the sacrifice she is about to make, is incredibly timely. Here's how that encourages me. If I asked you right now, what's Jesus doing in your life? What plan does he have? Where has he brought you from? And what is he preparing you for? <coughs> Should have put more notes in there. <coughs> I'm going to guess that in your life you would have a certain sense of knowing a little bit about what God's doing. But in two years, if you look back, you might be absolutely shocked by everything God was preparing you for and what he was going to do. To me, that helps us connect with Mary a little bit. Are there sacrifices that the Lord is calling you to make? Probably. Are there difficult things, even things that you might have to give up that would feel like a loss? Probably. But do you have any idea how God would use them or what they might mean in a particular moment? You do not. I think I still grab a phrase from what we looked at last week. Our deep ignorance should comfort us. The deep ignorance, not only what we share about everything related to the temple and all those kinds of things, not only the deep ignorance that we have trying to explain the dual nature of Jesus and the mystery of the incarnation, but the deep ignorance of how God is ultimately at work in your life and what your sacrifices are accomplishing in his kingdom. <coughs> All right, guys, sorry. We're just going to have to get used to it. I'm going to be coughing. But I think we should be encouraged. Bill, thanks for muting me here. I appreciate that. I think we should be encouraged when we think about what this is uh, setting as a paradigm for us. You might be doing things right now. You might be called to do things in the future that will feel like a real loss. And we're going to look in a second at what this really costs, Mary. But the truth is, I don't know if she's surprised or how much she's shocked when Jesus speaks at the end. But I think as we approach this text, before we think about the cost, we just need to be aware of this. I think you'll be ultimately shocked someday when you recognize what you've given up and you recognize it was entirely worth it. The moments that we feel what we are going to lose are difficult. But the deep ignorance that we bring to those moments, why God's calling us to those things and how he's going to use us, I think in some day we will be very comforted to realize all that God did by things that we didn't understand in the moment. So looking at her timely sacrifice, let's move on to the second and kind of what I consider to be the bigger point. There is a cost to her sacrifice that emerges in verse 3. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now, why did they scold her? They scolded her not because her sacrifice was meager. They scolded her not because her sacrifice was costly. They scolded her because her sacrifice was wasted. In other words, everybody saw what we just heard. In fact, John says it this way. Everybody smelled what we just read. John said, when this happened, the aroma filled the room. You ever meet somebody who's just worn a little too much perfume or a little bit too much cologne, and now you've taken a car ride with them or something like that? That's, that's that times like 10 for John in this moment. As soon as the bottle breaks, it's just obvious what has happened. And what they see, what they smell, what they're very aware of to them doesn't just look costly, it looks wasteful. Here's why it looks wasteful. Look at what she did. What did she break? She broke an alabaster flask, which all of a sudden tells us this was no mere perfume. It's not some sort of like, I don't know exactly what the most expensive perfumes are, but it's not that. There's no spritz bottle at the top of this. More than likely, this was a jar of ointment sealed and sealed in such a way that it was supposed to have value and never be used. A lot of commentators actually think this was probably, for her, an inheritance. We have no indication that Mary was, was married. We have no indication other than she seems to be connected to her sister and to her brother. But we have no indication that this woman, in breaking this alabaster flask, is doing anything that she would have done every day. It's not as though this was three-quarter full. She's been using this a little bit whenever she goes out in public. This is something that represents for her a life-saving, something she'd have sold when the moment came. And so the only way to be able to get into it is to break the flask, not a clay flask, not a small jar, a very expensive jar that she's broken. And when she breaks it, what comes out? Pure nard, very costly. How costly? Well, so costly that she is told a little bit later, that what this should have done would have been to take a year's worth of salary, essentially, and just pour it over Jesus' feet, pour it over Jesus' head, and instead should have been, in their minds, rather than just poured out on the floor, it should have been sold, should have been given to the poor. That's the reason at the end of verse 5, they are scolding her. 
Why was the ointment wasted like that? In other words, something so valuable was thrown away. That's the view that everybody else has of this moment. The cost of this, though, isn't just in the fact that she gave away something that would be the equivalent of what you would have made in a year's worth of time. Now, I realize what you make in a year is difficult to be able to say, right? Because we all make different amounts of money. But the point that I like in this is that ultimately the way a denarii is thought of is as a day's wage. If you were to work for a year, save up everything that you had, and then God said, I want it, is that fair? If we think this is a moment that seems in some ways unique in Scripture, we recognize it isn't. Probably the earliest and what might feel like the, the closest parallel would come early in the book of Genesis, right? A man God called away from his homeland, brought to a different homeland. And in the process of that, God gives him a promise, you're going to have a child. He finds his own ways of trying to have a kid. It doesn't work out. Finally, at the end of his days, God fulfills a promise to Abram, now Abraham, and gets his wife, who was Sarai, and now Sarah, to bring a child into the world. And when he's old enough, God says, I want him. You've worked, waited, and been faithful all this time. Now take your child, your only child, whom you love. Bring him with me to Moriah, and I want you to kill him. There's actually a movie that the, the, the chosen folks are, are putting out. It has to do with this entire moment. And I think it's an interesting parallel to what's happening right here. Because if you asked Mary, how's your future secure? And you asked her before this moment, she would have said, my future is secure because of that jar that's up on the shelf. If anything bad ever happens, I have that, and that watches over my future. Now, in some ways, she's right. For her needs for crisis moments, for things that might happen, for a season of drought, that would be protection for her. It really is a very real and good answer. How is your future secured? If you went back to Abraham's life and you asked him the question, Abraham, has God made promises to you? Yes, I was going to be a father of many. No, I'm going to be a father of many nations. God has promised that there will be many who would come out, an innumerable amount of people that would point themselves back to me and say, this is the father of our nation. How is that future going to be secured? Well, it's pretty clear it's going to be secured through my son, through Isaac. He's over there. And in both cases, God says, no. Something happened to this woman so that when she is asked to answer that question, how is your future to be secured? She recognizes that her future wasn't in jeopardy because of potential drought, because of potential famine, because of financial need. It wasn't going to be because someday she wouldn't be able to work and secure her future. Her future was in danger because of the contribution she and others had made to the rebellion against God. 
The only way her future was to be secured is if one who had the ability to secure her future secured it it for her. And Jesus has been saying over and over, that's what I'll do for you. The only appropriate thing in her mind was to be able to lay it all out for him. Abraham, how will your future be secure? Is it through the son, your only son, whom you love? Or is it through the God who makes promises to you? And the thing that enables Abraham to be able to sacrifice Isaac, though prevented from it, is the same thing that allows this woman to be able to take what is hers and to pour it out for Jesus. Now, we know how this story ends. We know the declaration that Jesus makes over her. But if you removed yourself out from this story, and as they were walking from Jerusalem to Bethany, Jesus asked his disciples, the work that I'm going to do to set up and establish the kingdom of God on earth will have one story that will go with it and that will be married to it till the end of days. Who would you think would be a part of that story? Well, the disciples have had this conversation before, haven't they? It would be the greatest of us. It would be the one of us, the 12 men, who are most important. It would probably be because of something that we did in Jerusalem. In other words, the one who should be married to the story of Jesus should be the ultimate insider. But look at the way that Mark tells the story. Go back to verse 3. It says, while he was at Bethany, right? While he's at Bethany. In other words, not at Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, in Bethany. And in Bethany, at the very home of the outsiders, there is one home in particular of someone who is the ultimate outsider. It is Simon, and not just Simon. Mark wants us to know. It's Simon the leper. So does the story that has to go along with what Jesus did to establish his kingdom happen in Jerusalem? No, it happens outside of Jerusalem. Does it happen in the home of an important person? No, it happens at the home of one of the lepers. So in the outsider city, at the home of the greatest outsider, happens an event that is marked, as Mark says, by Mary, whom everybody would say, oh, Mary. No, that's not the way Mark wants to tell this story. More more than likely, it is Mary. Mark just calls her a woman. Another outsider. You see the way Mark is setting up this story? There will be one thing that is married to the gospel till the end of days, and it is by the ultimate outsider. I read this in uh, by James Edwards. Here's here's part of this quote. He said, though likely Mary, the status of the woman as an outsider is enhanced if she remains unnamed. Bethany and Simon are named, and leaving her as simply the woman underscore this ongoing motif. From this most unexpected quarter comes an act of sacrificial generosity that supersedes anything reported of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. That's how Jesus sees this. 
But this only goes with the way that Jesus has been commending things, right? He comes into the temple. He meets Pharisee, Sadducee, leader after leader. They all come up to him. The best commendation any of them gets is, man, you are close to the kingdom. But if you want to know the true heart of the kingdom, the true life of the kingdom, who did Jesus commend when he was there at the temple? Mark chapter 12, truly I say to you, this poor widow. She's put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Do you feel the parallel right there between this woman now in Mark 14 and that poor widow in Mark chapter 12? All she has to live on offered to Jesus in sacrificial, what seems like wasteful generosity. I remember a moment that we were back in the plaza. We were living our, our, our church life in the way that we were. And there was, there was some um, time that I had, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get ready. I'm going to get ready for some of the upcoming sermons that we had. And so at those times, we used to have these um, sermon handouts that we gave. And so I printed up like a week's worth of them. And I had them. This is back before we had finished off that back room it, when it used to be that, that shelf-filled, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just a mess back there, right? And so we needed to go back, and we needed to clean that out. So the next day, a group of guys came in, and we were kind of tidying up that back room. And at the end of the day, I went back to go get my, my, my stacks of, of sermon handouts, Right? And all of them were gone. They had been thrown away in the middle of all that. And I got so angry. It wasn't because I cared about the pieces of paper, right? It was because all that work that I had put out had just been totally tossed away. And when I asked the guys, I was like, did you, did you not see the pieces of paper that were, that were right there? Like, oh, yeah, I mean... I don't know that we did. I'm sorry. It just looked like it was with the stuff that was to be pitched. And I was like, oh, I was, I was not just like, hmm, that was a bummer. I felt so personally wounded. I felt so like, why am I not being like, Lord, how did this happen? I had a friend in, in, uh, when we taught who used to say, life favors the unprepared and it punishes the prepared. And that was one of those moments that felt that way. I mean, teaching's always that way. You make all these plans and then something happens, you gotta change all your plans, right? I, I had done all this work and it had just been wasted and dumped out there. And I was, I was talking to Jonathan about it afterwards and he said, wasn't it good that we have a God who sees the unseen? I'm like, no, it would be better if we had a God who rewarded me for all my hard work by not letting my stuff get thrown away. But that's not the economy of the kingdom of God, is it? He's not impressed by those who pray on street corners. He's not impressed by those who give with silver trumpets. He's not impressed by what other people see. He's impressed by this. This kind of costly sacrifice. And I, these are the moments that it's hard to be able to, to sort of generate a sermon application that sort of covers the blanket of all the silent ways that you suffer and serve and give and what it looks like to live in a world that calls that wasteful. 
But I will say the first time I preached this passage out of John, it was Mother's Day. And that felt like an appropriate text. I told Christine, I'm preaching the why this waste story. She's like, oh, Mother's Day. It's like, yeah. It was one of those moments that we could commend and say, what, what epitomizes this the most in some ways? It feels like so many of the sacrifices that we see moms make. Dads, you too. But yeah, Mike understands. <laughs> I don't know how to exactly tie your sacrifice to this, but I hope you can make the connection. She takes what seems to be most important, and she, to end verse 5, is scolded for it. To use more current vernacular, canceled, ridiculed, mocked. She's told that what she did was wasteful, and then here are Jesus' words in verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. For she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And if you want to take verse 7 and say Jesus doesn't care about the poor, I encourage you to go back and read the Gospel of Mark again. And you recognize that is not the point of this. It would be one thing if a rich Pharisee, who in the words of the Good Samaritan parable, would be passing by on the other side of the road and ignoring those in need were telling this story. That might seem a little bit like they were trying to justify their apathy. Jesus is clearly not apathetic to the poor. Jesus is not clearly apathetic to the outsiders. In fact, Mark is going out of his way to be able to say he cares for the most marginalized with the most marginalized at the most marginalized settings. He is taking those everybody would overlook and he's saying, look at how she gives. Look at what she sacrifices. And he says, of this moment, no one no one should be married more to the story of the gospel than this woman. Donald English said, we must not miss that the Christ is finally being treated as the anointed one. And he puts that in quotes because that is the direct translation of what Christ, or in Hebrew, the Messiah is. The Messiah is not simply the Savior. The Christ is the one who is the anointed one. Nor should we miss the fact that it was a woman, and as this gospel proceeds, it will be the women who are increasingly the most faithful and reliable of Jesus' followers. Only she is instinctively in harmony with Jesus' repeated prediction of the immediate future. This was not planned. I'm so grateful to be able to say, I think this is one of the better texts to be able to read after International Women's Day. It will not be any of the 12. It will not be the men who are the heroes of the rest of the story. Jesus is. But who will sit with you on your right and your left? Well, so far, according to Mark, it's a poor widow and this woman. You understand my kingdom? Do what they've done.
Pour yourself out like they've been willing to be broken and poured out. Why was the ointment wasted? Jesus' words, leave her alone. And then to contradict the idea that this is wasteful, he says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. At the end of the day, it might be at the fa- you're at the phase of life where you're thinking about retirement. You're thinking about what secures your future and you're thinking about how to prepare for it. Good for you. We are going to be talking in the book of Proverbs in a little while about the wisdom of that, to be sure. There is great wisdom in preparing well so that you can be generous to the end of your days. But if you live for that, then listen to the words of the one who would contradict the ultimate wisdom of that. He said, I have seen a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. What is then the hoarding of all wealth for your greater security out into the future? It is this, vanity and a grievous evil. There's a way of thinking about the financial future. We have a poor widow giving away all she has. We have Mary taking what seems to be saved up for her future and breaking it and pouring it out for Jesus. And we have Jesus' assessment saying that is hardly wasteful. In fact, it is only appropriate. And so we're not looking just at her timely sacrifice or her costly sacrifice. We are looking at, in our third point, her exemplary sacrifice. She is the example of what it means to pour yourself out for Jesus. Now, Jesus to this point has been provided for. He had nowhere to lay down his head. But he often did lay down his head, sometimes outside, sometimes provided for. If you read through the story of the Gospel of Acts, you realize there are so many who leave what's comfortable to them and immediately go out so that they can be in the world of, of, um, of, of sharing the Gospel. It's, it's the way that the Gospel stories followed along, to be sure. Paul gives up much. Timothy gives up much. John Mark gives up much. Silas gives up much. They leave and they go. But at the same time, when they go, they are provided for by many who stay. And this is the other difficulty in being able to take the full weight of New Testament Scripture and say, what does this mean? Now, I don't want to say, look, none of you should sell everything that you have and give it to Jesus. Because it's possible. It's very possible in reading a text like this that some of us have to be challenged with the idea of whether we've been hoarding. Whether if we're asking about our future, we have to ask the question of, how then am I going to be okay in the future? And we turn to something that's on our shelf and we say, that's it. That's the thing that will secure my future. It might be that the Lord's asking you to break it. It might be that the Lord is asking you to pour it out. It might be that like the poor widow, the Lord is asking you to give up everything that you have. It could be, this is an example we used a long time ago, 
It could be that God is calling Bill Paradise to take every tool, every van, every building, everything he has, sell it all, and give it all away. And in his situation, <laughs> he will be coming to the benevolence team probably in a couple weeks and asking for a little bit of help. And those in that moment who have not sold out everything that they have but have kept and have given out of their profits to the benevolence fund will be able to supply and help Bill and Judy as that sacrifice has been made. He's amening a lot back there. Those of you in close contact with Bill may want to talk to him a little bit about that. You see the point that I'm trying to make. There is a difference between selling everything and then also potentially keeping some ways of keeping some money and keeping some investments and then not using those investments solely for our future but for the future of God's kingdom. All of these in terms of applications take a great deal of wisdom. That's the caveat. But it's not the main point of this text. The main point of this text is that Jesus is pleased by costly, wasteful sacrifice. And if you are too quick to dismiss that point because of the caveat, you might need to just go back and read this again. If you're too quick to say, well, let's put an asterisk on this because clearly God doesn't want us to be like the poor widow. Clearly doesn't, God doesn't want us to be like Mary. He doesn't want us to be like this woman. I'm not sure we're reading this passage rightly. The asterisk is there, but the asterisk isn't the point. The point is, I think we need to go back and ask the question, whether it's financial for you or if we take a step back, and let the finances of it be a little bit more of a metaphor? You might be raising your kids, parents, so that you can put them on the shelf and have them trust what's on the shelf rather than letting them be laid out before the Lord and saying, Lord, you take them and direct them as you will. You might be looking at your retirement. You might be looking at this next year and thinking, well, this is going to go well because I've got this, that, and the other thing on the shelf. And the Lord might be saying, I'd, I'd like that. I'd like the way you think about your family. I'd like the way you think about your possessions. I'd like the way you think about everything that you think gives you security and guards your future to be something you're willing to break and pour out in front of me. That, I think is the main way for us to read this. With then the help of friends and the rest of scripture that helps us to be able to figure out where wisdom fits in with exemplary, timely, and costly sacrifices for the kingdom. As I say, in a context like this, it's hard to exactly know what to preach, what not to preach, but I can tell you exactly who not to be like because the verse does not end in verse 9. It reads in contrast, in verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I had a slide that was a contrast between this woman and Judas, and I thought it a little bit kind of uh, juvenile. 
Because I think it's pretty obvious. Mark says this is the way to follow Christ. And in fact, every time the gospel's proclaimed, I want this story told so that you understand how to respond. And this is how to betray me. That's our choice. Do you take what you own and what you love of this world and did you pour it out or do you hoard it? Something of that contrast diagnoses whether we are on the side of this woman or this man. But in a slightly more encouraging moment, the good news is I don't feel like I'm talking to a group of people who don't follow Jesus. I feel like I could tell stories from your lives of the ways that when people have harmed you, you've chosen to pour out your bitterness and instead include forgiveness. When there's been weakness in your life, ongoing weakness, you've chosen to help and to pour yourself out for those in need. I could tell your stories because they're very real and they're very timely. But instead, let me read a a quote that I think diagnoses that story. J.C. Ryle said, Finally, let us see in this passage a sweet foretaste of things yet to come in the day of judgment. Let us believe that the same Jesus who here pleaded the cause of his loving servant when she was blamed will one day plead for all who have been his servants in this world. Let us work on, remembering that his eye is upon us and that all we do is noted in his book. Let us not heed what men say or think of us because of our religion. The praise of Christ at the last day will more than compensate for all we suffer in this world from unkind tongues. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we look at a passage that is familiar to us, but that you have freshly opened before us. I pray that you would both see us and remove from us a love of money that thinks that our future is secured because of what we own, what we can do, and what we bring to the table so that we can secure a future for ourselves. Instead, Father, I pray that you would free us, as we declared at the beginning of this service, free us never to live that way again. Free us and encourage us, Lord, that when sacrifices are made, it's not this world's value system that measures whether they were worth it or not. It's not whether this world would smile on us and commend us that tells us whether we've done the right thing. But it'll be your words. It will be your defense. And it will be your commendation of us at the end of days. And so, Lord, I pray, carry us until that day and help us to follow you, to be broken for you and to be poured out for you. And Lord, I pray, let us never, ever be ashamed. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Father, as well, thank you for helping me get through.